0: OK, I'm glad you're here. So we're going to start. Um, I want to I want to look into a, a number of different ideas today. But um, I want to I want to talk about uh, just kind of um, kind of the un, unknowableness uh, of life for a moment, just um, because, you know, we have to make this kind of I think that the, the sophisticated person, you know, it's funny like that. The word um, "sophisticate," you know, we, we all want to be sophisticated, which means very worldly and very knowledgeable and everything like that. But um, but it, it has to have the right We have to. Write, it has to have the the, the right ingredients, the, the the right recipe, and just sort of like ironically, for someone to, 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 to properly uh, be aware and and, and fully conscious. Um we also have to incorporate as one of the um chief ingredients of, of knowing is, is not knowing. And, and and that's that's huge. And it's it seems to go against the grain. In fact the, the Gomorrah says that a person actually has to train their tongue to say, I don't know because we're so um we're so inclined to know. You know, I'll tell you something, one of the the biggest moments in in my learning, actually, um or it was it I don't want to overstate it, but I was sitting in a, in a, in a base medrash, in a, you know, a, a, a house of Torah learning. And, um, and I was learning next to um, an eight-year-old. And th- this eight-year-old, you know, was like a real kind of yeshiva guy. He had like the yeshiva dress for him and everything like that. And obviously, you know, was nursed on Hebrew and everything like that. And, 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 and I wasn't and all those things. And I was sitting there, and I was struggling over a Hebrew word in this text. And I knew that he knew what that Hebrew word meant. But I'm in my 40s, and he's 8 years old. And for most people, I guess that would not be an issue. Like, just ask the (laughs) 8-year-old the question, and he will tell you what the answer is. But for me, I guess I was just sort of like a little prideful. And I was like, you know... Can I do this? Can I ask this eight-year-old and expose the, the the fullness of my ignorance? You know, this question, this very basic question. And then I thought to myself, What am I doing? Who am I? What am I that I'm going to stop myself from learning just because of my own ego and my own pride and everything like that? And and it you know it took a, a, a real moment. You know, I'll tell you something. The, um, the Rabbi Israel solander said, the loudest sound in the world, the loudest sound in the world is the sound of a bad habit being broken. Right? That's a, I think that's a good one. But anyway, so a lot of times our, our pride, if we snap our pride, it, it's like there's this atomic blast noise that, that, that comes out. And so I asked, this, I asked this little kid this question, you know, and he gave me the answer. And, and I was happy. I was really, I was happy for it, you know. So, 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 anyway, the, the, the irony is that, that when, we, when we make ourselves comfortable with the, with, with the mystery of life, if you will, and, and, and the limitations of that which we can understand, we actually become more enlightened and we become more sophisticated. And that's, that's the irony. Because no one wants to admit that they don't know, but, but admitting that we don't know is actually one of the greatest aspects of, of expanding and knowing. So, so to know that we don't know is actually to know on a much higher level. But these things have to be balanced. It doesn't mean that we just have to accept. Okay, so then someone says, well, look, I don't know. So then just accept, 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 accept. So it doesn't mean that either. Because we're also a religion and a tradition about constantly challenging. So all these things have to be balanced. It's a tightrope walk. All these things have to be balanced. You know, um, I mentioned, uh, I mentioned something that, that last week actually, but I, it got erased. So <laughs> I'll say it again, I'm sorry. But I was listening to NPR, and they did the first time ever, a study of hibernating bears. And they took, first time ever, they, they wired them and to, to measure their, their metabolic rates while they're, while they're hibernating. Now, I, I went this morning and I double-checked this number because I couldn't believe that it was actually true. I thought, this number can't be true, but I checked it this morning, it is true. And I'll put the link up if you want to listen to the full uh, story on the bears. They hibernate for six months. Six months. During this six-month period, they don't eat and they don't drink and they don't go to the bathroom. That, to me, reminded me of two things. One, now what do they do? How do they sustain themselves? They tap into the fat that's inside them, and they fully 100% absorb that fat into their system, so there is no waste product whatsoever. Now, our tradition says that when we ate manna in the desert, the bread that fell from heaven, now remember, manna is... Condensed light. That's what Rabbi Akiva says in, in Masech Yuma. It's, it's, it's light that sort of like got hardened, became condensed. That's what man was. And it was 100% pure, 1,000% pure. And when we ate it, we didn't go to the bathroom afterwards because it was 100% absorbed in our system. Now, someone may have heard that and said, well, you know, that sounds pretty far-fetched. We didn't go to the but here you see it in the natural world. It goes on six months for thousands of years, maybe hundreds of thousands of years. Who knows? Millions of bears. It's part of the normal course of things. The normal order of things. Not only that, but it says that Moshe Rabbeinu, when Moses Moses got the Torah, he didn't eat or drink for 40 days. Here you see bears not eating or drinking for six months at a time. So, so, I looked it up, it's in, um, it's in uh, the Gomorrah uh, Sanhedrin, on page uh, 100A, if you want to look at it for yourself. Um, kind of an interesting thing. It says that um, one of the students of Rabbi Yochanan was attending a class, and Rabbi Yochanan was saying that um, that in the future, this is based on a um, on a prophecy from Isaiah, Yeshayahu. That, that Hashem is going to carve gemstones, giant gemstones that are going to constitute the gates in Jerusalem in the, in the third base of Mikdash, right? When Mashiach comes. And, and also pearls, pearls and gems. And this student said, I don't understand. And this is what, what he's about to say is true for us today. He said, if you find a pearl the size of an egg, that's enormous. Where are we going to find stones this huge that they're going to constitute the the, the gates and they're going to hollow them out, the gates of an entire city. So then, it says later on, he went on a ship and he was sailing and this student was granted a vision of angels carving out these stones, exactly like Rabbi Yochanan had said. And he said to the angels, what are you doing? And he said, "We're, we're preparing the gates for the future... Of Jerusalem and then he went back very excitedly to Rabbi Yochanan and said he said what you said I saw continue to teach you're exactly right now what did Rabbi Yochanan say back to him because I'm always stunned by what his response back to him was I would have thought was you saw angels or wow yes we're on board I I communicated you saw it. you see that what I was saying was true what he said back to him was "Fool, fool! You had to see it with your own eyes in order to believe it." So, I mean, it's like it's like that rebuke is still echoing th- through the millennium, and it's like I I feel like I was called that. You know what I mean? It's like it's like it's still reaching me, Rabbi Yochanan's words. You know, it's like wow. Anyway, so the sages say another thing that people have difficulty wrapping their minds around. But again, science is still catching up with Torah. Is the resurrection of the dead, mass resurrection of the dead. You know, now we have things like cloning, where people find fossils and things like that. And based on these fossils, they're able to remove the DNA, and they're able to recreate something that was dead for, for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, whatever it is. And they can make it anew. So we see in science that it's true. So... So, so God can't do it? So, but, but the sages give an even more sort of compelling um, just because of its simplicity. Example, they say, listen, you, you plant a seed underground. Imagine that's like a body being planted underground. You plant a seed underground. The outside of the seed decays, right? That's like the body decaying. And then a sprout shoots up like new life. Shoots up, a sprout shoots up and comes into the ground. Out of the ground, and that's the muscle. That's the parable that they give us for understanding um, the dead coming back to life. So, so you see all of these things. Now I bring it up because we started off with this concept, which is the limits of understanding, the limits of knowing, and yet, and yet we have to know, right? So, so I just want to share with you an, another way that we see this, okay? And. Um, you know i was just listening and it's a very very famous shear a talk that rabbi uh well i don't know if he's a rabbi but but he's a he's a uh professor gerald schroeder a, a big mit guy has given on genesis and and the big bang and um and he's a physicist from mit and uh all the rest and It's funny because this is a famous talk and people have all heard it, I guess, but somehow I I never heard it until this past week. It's an amazing talk. You must hear this talk. It's an amazing talk. An amazing talk. And so he got me thinking about some stuff and I'm not quoting him so much now, but, but just I recommend that. Which is, you see, you see, there's something very famous at the beginning of the Torah. By the way, he points out that Tens of thousands of books on cosmology have been written. And the whole description in the Torah of, of the creation of the world is 31 verses. And he says that the Gomorrah itself, now this is going back a couple of thousand years, the Gomorrah itself says that these, that the account that the Torah gives is a parable. Which is very, that's, that's very interesting. And they compare it to a line uh from from King Solomon, Shlomo Melech, which is that a just like a silver bowl with golden apples. So what is that? So from a distance you just see the bowl. But when you look inside the bowl, you see something even more valuable, which is the contained within the silver is gold. So that's how we're to understand these um passages in the Torah. That they, on, on, when you first look at them, they're valuable, but they're, there's one level of value. But when you delve more deeply into them, then you find gold existing where you just thought that there was silver. So it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, so, so we have a lack of parallelism, which is really compelling. And I just want to get into that for a moment. And it's a famous thing. Uh, it's a famous thing. So Hashem makes the first day and it says, and he calls it Yom Echad, one day. And then Hashem makes the second day and he calls it Yom Sheini, the second day. So do you hear the lack of parallelism? One day, second day. And then it goes third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. Or the sixth day. So what should it say? First day, second day, third day, right? First day, second day. Or, one day, two days. Right? It should be parallel. But it's not. It's one day, Yom Echad, and then second day, third day, fourth day. So what is this lack of parallelism coming to indicate? Alright? So I want to say something something on this. But, but first let me just um, take a moment to... Uh, talk about this idea of one day, which is, I think, kind of cool. Yom That's the Matzah's Yahu song, right? One day, right? I wonder if he had that. I'll have to ask him. I wonder if he had that in mind also, you know. So one day, by the way, one day the... That's... Well, let, let's get more into it before we, we, we talk about some of the levels. You see... You see... The rabbis explain that one day means a day that was all where God dwelled alone. That's why it's one day. The oneness of God. Just just God. God dwelled alone. You see, you see this is important because it tells you that the perspective, narratively speaking, the perspective of the account of creation is going from the beginning forward as opposed to looking back on something that's already happened. I'll explain what I mean by that. Because if it's looking back on something, you see, when you've got first, second, third, that's relativistic. That means something can be first if there's something else that exists. Because then you have first and second. Alright? But if there's only one thing that exists, it can't be first, it has to be one. So, so, do you understand? So, so, when it says one day, that's coming from the point of view from the second not having existed yet. That tells you the point of view of the text, that it's starting from the beginning and then moving forward, as opposed to looking back. Because if it was looking back, then the second, the third, and the fourth already existed, and then you could refer to the first as the first and not as one. Am I communicating? Everyone following? Okay, good. So you've got this idea of one day. So that's just God dwelling alone. Now, now it says, it says that that there was no yetsahara, there was no no evil, no bad mixed into that day. And the rabbis learn in the Gemara something very interesting, which is that there's one day out of the year which is totally free and clear of any 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 any. Um, any bad side to it. And that day is Yom Kippur. It's one pure day. Alright? Now listen to this. So so the Gomorrah brings this. Now I think this is interesting because you, you've got a lot of gematrias in, 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 in Torah. You know, um, but not too many philosophical gematrias from the Gomorrah itself. Like you have more kind of technical or legalistic things that they learned out through gematria from the Gomorrah, but not so many philosophical ones. So this is very striking, the fact that this is coming from the Gomorrah. Um, so it's, it's Yom Kippur is a day, one day out of the year, that's free of any evil, okay? So if you take the word hasatan, which means the accuser, like Satan, hasatan, the accuser, the Gomorrah says the gematria of hasatan is 364. So in other words, HaSatan, this energy, this sort of mixed energy with Yetzahara in it, is present 364 days out of the year, but not one day, which is this Yom Kippur day, right? Yom Echad. Not only that, but but I, I learned something else from this, which is that the fact that the very first day of creation had a Yom Kippur energy in in it, means that God foresaw that human beings are fallible, that they're going to make mistakes, and from the very first day of creation, He was preparing forgiveness for all of us and all humanity for all time. In other words, as one of the premises of all of creation, God was already anticipating and creating forgiveness for all of humanity. So I, I love that also, you know? Okay. So now, now let's just shift gears slightly, you know, you've got this, you've got the first letter of, 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 of the Torah is the letter base, right? And the way the letter base is shaped is that it's got this sort of like, this iron wall, this, 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 this pole, you know? And, and so when the rabbis teach that, if you want to go backwards and you want to explore the very, very origin, right, you hit a certain wall at a certain point. You hit the wall of the base of Breshid where you can't go beyond that. You can't go further than that. And, um, you see, there's something that people have to understand when they try to imagine God. I heard Rabbi Green say this, and I think this is true. I don't know that people do this intentionally, by the way. I think that this just... We kind of, we don't even know that we think this. But most people think this when they imagine God. They imagine just a bigger, stronger, smarter version of us. Right? And maybe without a body. Alright? Let's make it Jewish. Right? So it's like bigger, stronger, smarter than us. But that's not God. God is way beyond that. He's way, 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 way beyond that. Okay? And the Ramban in his Ikharim, which are the essential philosophical principles of what constitutes a Torah understanding of the world, says that God is not just one, meaning this massive unity. God is not just one, but God is unique. Now we have to just spend a moment like separating what's the difference between one and unique. Unique means there is no other thing like it. In other words, there is no reference point for it. Like, like, let's say I have a giant version of, of a cup. Well, if I have a smaller version of a cup, that's just a bigger version of that. Okay? So, so, so it's not unique. It's just a bigger version of that. But God, we say, is unique, which means there is no reference point. There is no likeness of Him that exists at all. There's just God. And that's, in his, his oneness, is unique. So that's actually a very liberating thought, because you realize, men, you just don't know because it's not present. It's not in your field of vision. You don't see it. It's not, it's not, it's not part of the, 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 the sample data. Now, understand that the angels have a vision of God which is exponentially greater than our vision of God, so much so that we say that they're stripped of all free will. Because they're standing before the greatness of God, and they can't, like, you know, it's like, I'm mad at that guy, should I shoot him? No, you know, it's like, wh- no! They can't, they can't exercise any, any bad thought or inclination or anything like that. They have no free will. Because they see the fullness of God. But, what do the angels say? The angels say, where is the place of his glory? Which means even angels, whose understanding is dimensions beyond our understanding, they don't see the fullness of God. They don't see it, because God is unique. God is beyond, beyond, beyond even that. Okay? Okay. So now, now with this in mind, let's revisit the letter base one more time, which is, base is really interesting, because on the very bottom of the letter base, there's a there's a, there's a horizontal line that peaks behind the wall. You'll see, there's like a little stem, right? Because here, if you want to draw the letter Beis, it goes... And that little, that little pointing is pointing to the letter Aleph before the letter Beis of Reishi. Which means, yeah, it's true, we can't know God in His fullness, basically, because God is unique and He's beyond, right? But at the same time, it's pointing and it's hinting to the fact that there's a creator informing all of existence. And that's all there. Now, I want to get to really the point of everything I've been building up to. It's actually maybe a much smaller point than what I've been trying to say, but I I just want to say it. So you've got one day, and then you've got second day. That's a paradigm shift. That's a paradigm shift because you're going into a completely different phraseology. Do you understand? One day and then second day, meaning to say, as you work backwards, you get to the letter base. You get to this idea of, um, you know, that that which that which is knowable, okay, which is this world. But then it goes, okay. Let's say I want to work backwards. Let's say I'm a, I'm a cosmologist or a physicist or something like this. So I thought. Fifth, fourth, third, second. I've gotten all the way back, and then one. Oh no, no! It's a just it's a totally different paradigm. <laughs> I don't get to first. I go from second. Now, my God, I'm finally going to get to God, right? I'm finally going to get there. Second, I got up to second. I'm up to first. No, second, one. Eh. <laughs> you know all, the, all of a sudden the lights go dark. The lights go dark. Now that's inc- that's an inc- I to me that's an incredible thing. That, and and it's it's and look at the simplicity with which it's recorded in the Torah. Just one day, second day. Right? And yet the giantness of the concept there, you know? Um Okay. So 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 I heard um, uh, Rabbi Avram Sutton was in town recently and uh, I didn't hear him say this but he told someone who who related it to me and I I, I was so sort of like uh, intrigued by this, you know? Which is that in, in in the initial account of creation Hashem refers to the two great luminaries the sun and the moon, right? And because because it says two great luminaries, that means that they were equal because they, they're, they're presented as having equal importance. The two great luminaries. So the rabbis learned from this that originally the sun and the moon were the same size. And later on, because the, the moon complained, the moon said, is it right that two heads should share the same crown? Meaning these two great, you know, you know, you know heavenly spheres should share the sky, which is like the which is like a crown. And so Hashem said to the moon, this is all medrash, this is all parable, Hashem said to the moon, you know, you're right, you're right, make yourself small, you know, so that's going to solve the problem. If you're smaller, then we won't have this problem. So, and I heard Rabbi Wein say, by the way, that every time a person looks at the moon, it should be a message of humility to a person. You know, so that's an interesting, ongoing sort of, a, you know, Astrological Musser talk that's going on, but um, any, anyway. Um, so, so what's the point? This is all, this is all familiar ground. But Rabbi Sutton pointed out something very cool, which is that in a in an eclipse, when when the moon. Now remember, the moon. We know the moon and the sun are radically different sizes. The moon is tiny compared to the sun. Sun is, you know way larger. Not only that, but in terms of um, mileage, how many millions of miles away, the sun is 93 million miles away. The moon is way, way closer to the earth than the, than the sun is. You know, so they're, they're, they're tremendously different sizes and tremendously different distances from the earth. And yet, when the earth in an eclipse travels in front of the sun, It's the exact size of the sun. It's the exact size of the sun when it stops in front of it. And then it moves on. Now look how, look at all of the things that had to be arranged in terms of like the real estate of the heavens, right? In order to correlate these two things in such a precise way. So so the levels of exactitude that we dwell amidst is really, really is really thought-provoking. It's really thought-provoking. Because we've got such a tension in our own lives when it seems like everything is so ridiculously out of whack. And yet, when we look, we see such precision. You know, I, 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 want, to, I want to change the subject slightly, but only slightly, because it's another example of, of precision. Um... In the text and, and that which surrounds us. The very last word of this week's Parsha that we just read in Vayakel is this word Nechoshet. Nechoshet means um, copper. And, um, you know, the, our tradition is, is that God created the world out of the Hebrew letters. Now, how are we to understand that? The way I'll tell you how I understand it. That the, that the different levels symbolize... Different um, energy wavelengths, basically, and so God combined these different energy wavelengths in order to give us, in order to create the world. Okay, um, you know, I I just learned this from uh, from from Gerald Schroeder, but I looked it up also. It's from the Ramban, and it's just so compelling. It's so compelling. You see you see one of the ways that we understand God created the world was through this concept called Simsum. okay so timsum means that basically it's condensation or compression so God takes his his light like the or ein sof light without end and he compresses it and compresses it and compresses it until there's there's materiality okay so so there's a seamless continuity between spirituality, if you will, between light and then ultimately matter. And in fact in fact, this is on one level what Einstein was was formulating when he says E equals M C squared, which is this concept that energy can have mass. That energy if it's combined in the same way actually can have mass. And that's what God did with the with the universe. He took his heavenly light, which is Pure energy, right? And he created mass out of it. So we actually have mathematical formulas, you know, which is amazing. Um, By the way, you know, I, I sort of wondered, who's the greater scientific mind? Was it Einstein or was it Newton? Because Newton is the one who kind of formulated gravity to begin with. Right? He's the one who kind of put mathematical components on on, on nature, if you will, and of course came up with calculus and all the rest. And the reason why I bring up Newton is because Newton was absolutely fascinated with all of the measurements in the Besha Migdash, the Holy Temple. And he has sketches, you can see it, I've even put it on the on my on my website. Uh, His drawings of the Besha Migdash in his own hand. And the reason why one of the reasons why he was so fascinated by the measurements of the base mm-hmm. of Migdash is because he thought that these were divine proportions. Like, in other words, you know, have you ever had this experience where you're walking in a neighborhood and you're not being critical or anything like that, but someone's done a remodel and you realize it's like, you know what, they mean well, but that door is way too big for that home. <laughs> you know, they just put in. and it's like, you know, it's like we're going to to our house again, we're going to put a really nice door up here, and it's like, what did you guys do? That door is not, it's way too big for them, or they want to add, like, some nice windows, like those sort of, like, big sort of arch windows, right? And it's sort of like, that window, that looks terrible. I mean, I'm not knocking on their door and telling them, do you realize the window you just spent a lot of money on looks absolutely terrible in your home?" But, um, you know, but but in other words, getting proportions right is not a simple thing. It's not a simple thing, and 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 it's also kind of relative because just because I don't like the way that window looks, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're right. Maybe it's maybe that door looks great. What do I know, right? But what if there actually was a divine proportion? What if there was actually, you know, we say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. What if beauty was actually an objective experience? And what if it was actually calculated and measured out? And what if the proportions of the Beis Hamikdash, God's home if you will, were actually the blueprint of beauty and proportionality in the universe? Right? This is what Newton was preoccupied with. Newton was like way into this because he's like these measurements are like the secret to all of these things. Okay. So anyway, God combines all the letters and he makes these words, which is why when we look at Hebrew words, like no other language, we can get whole philosophical discourses contained within the letters and things like that. I mean, it's it's quite amazing. So so again on the subject of how precise everything is mm-hmm. let's just look at the last word of um, of uh, vayakel although this word appears in many places nechoshet means copper now copper copper was one of the ingredients for the mishkan for the for the holy temple and so that's why that's why that's the context of it coming up here now now there was a debate about copper and a very fascinating debate, which is that um, Moshe makes an announcement, we're building the the Mishkan, the the tabernacle in the desert, which was the prototype for the base of Migdash, the holy temple in Jerusalem, and everyone should make donations. Whoever wants to make a donation, make a donation. So people brought gold, and they brought silver, and they brought copper, and they brought um, dyed wools, and all sorts of things, right? But um, the women wanted to bring certain copper. And Moses, the Medrash records, didn't want to accept this copper. He wasn't crazy about this copper. Why? Because the women used it as mirrors. And they had like, really polished it, and they looked at themselves in it. And, and not only that, but they would the, the rabbis teach that, that they would use these mirrors to seduce their husbands to have children during the time of slavery in Egypt. And it was a way that the, the Jewish people were actually perpetuated because the men had basically given up and they just weren't interested and they were totally tired and broken. And yet the women with these copper mirrors were able to kind of get them on board and more children were born and so we, we survived as a people. Okay? But because there was this degree of vanity of looking into a mirror Moshe was like, uh, eh, I don't know if that really belongs in the Beis Migdash, okay? In the in the Mishkan. So Hashem says back to him, What do you No, no, these the mirrors definitely belong in the Mishkan because the women use them like for the sake of heaven and they absolutely have a place in in the Mishkan. And of course, you know, God wins that argument. <laughs> and 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 so the mirrors get incorporated into the kior, which was the um, kind of the uh, the fountain that the kahanim washed their hands from before they would do the work in the in the mishkan in the the avodah in the mishkan. So so Hashem Hashem's word prevails, obviously, and and so the the Nohoshet is used. Okay, now I want to show you how you see that entire argument. On Moshe's side and on God's side, all in the word Nechosha. Okay? So, let's look at it for a moment. Nechosha can be broken down into two parts. Nachash is the first three letters. Nachash means snake. And whenever you see snake, that's always standing for the snake in the Garden of Eden. And it also always means that, that energy of sexuality or of Yetzira-ness, of like trying to steer someone from their path, okay, from the proper path. So that's, that's Nechosha. Nachash and Taf. Taf, the letter Taf, is a very interesting letter in, in, in Hebrew grammar. It means belongs to. Okay, now I'll give you an example. Isha means woman. Eshet, with a taf at the end, means his wife. So this woman belongs to this man. So it's a, it's a possessive kind of thing. Okay. So, so taf means of, belonging to. So Moshe said, I don't think that we should have these mirrors, because nachash taf. It belongs to, the taf means belongs to, it belongs to the nachash, this snake energy of vanity or Sahara that they were kind of looking at themselves and all the rest, right? That was Moshe's argument. Hashem's argument back was, tough. also is what? It's the number 400. And we were sentenced, or it was decreed that we would be in Egypt for 400 years. And it says it was because of the merits of the women that we were taken out of Egypt. So Hashem says back to Moshe, no, Nachash Taf, because they harnessed the energy of the Nachash, because they uplifted it, and they sublimated it, and they used it properly for the sake of the Jewish people, right? We were able to s- survive the Taf, the 400 years of Egyptian exile. So absolutely it goes into the Mishkan. Amazing. You've got an entire philosophical discourse back and forth in one word in one word so so that sort of blows my mind anyway, because the I'll tell you why not because of that part that that part too is pretty cool, I think but but because what's going on with all the other words? <laughs> right? And what else is going on in this word that we didn't even touch on? Nachash, by the way, is also the gematria of Mashiach. Okay? Because by gematria you have something very interesting. Sometimes you'll have, and this is the best example, there is, by the way, I think, that where you'll have one number which will, which will incorporate two words which are the opposites on the same spectrum. So on, on, on one spectrum, what could be more opposite than the Nachash, the snake, which brings us into exile, and on the other side of that spectrum, Mashiach, which takes us out of exile. And it's the same number. You know, it's not a contradiction. God forbid. It just shows you just how, how deep this, this actually goes. That there's a whole spectrum involved. So, so anyway... So anyway, ultimately harnessing the power of the snake of the Nachash which is Gamatri Mashiach that it will belong to us. mashiach That's the top. So Mashiach will belong to us when we harness the power of the Nachash. So that's, that's also there. That's also there. So again, what about all the other what about all the other words? What about the What about the sun and the moon fitting in the same (laughs) the same hole? How is that possible? How is that possible? So the precision. So you have the precision against the backdrop of what? The precision against the backdrop of the fact that our lives are so completely out of whack. And this is the human condition. This is the human condition. This is the human condition. We're just trying to get it together. We're trying to get it together. I'll tell you something, something that kind of popped into my head. And it's something that I've been wondering about for a while. How is it possible that all the planets don't bump into each other? You know, they they exert these enormous gravitational pulls. And then you've got black holes, which are just off the charts in terms of the amount of gravitational pull that they that they that they uh exude, or whatever the proper word is, and yet you have this incredible ballet dance of trillions of spheres in the sky, all going the exact, 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 exact orbits, right? Because if it got out of whack, then these would start slamming into these, and then these would start slamming into these. And then before you know it, there's like mass chaos. Everything is slamming into everything else. You know, there would be a domino effect. And yet that's not the case. So I was thinking, you know, it's the same thing with you and me. Each person, the Talmud says that if you save one person, it's like you save the whole world. If you save one life, it's like you save the whole world. Each person is a, is a world, is a planet. How is it that we don't smash into each other? <laughs> And the, and the way we do it is with halakha, mm-hmm. right? Because halakha means the way. It means the path. And so when we go along the ideal path, we don't bump into each other, right? And then you're always going to have people bumping into each other, like you have meteors pla- smashing into planets, right? They're still bumping in, but then you have courts. That's also part of halakha. You have courts. Right? By the way, the mitzvah for divorce, listen to this, very interesting. You say, um, two people can't get along, so they get divorced because they can't get along. Right? But believe it or not, that's not the Torah reason for divorce. The reason for divorce in the Torah is that there should be peace in the home. Isn't that interesting? In other words, it's not because, okay, you guys absolutely can't get along with each other, go to your separate houses. That's not it. It's like, Peace is so prized. So it's for the sake of peace. And you have court systems where people can't resolve business tensions between each other. So you go to a court and then you resolve. Um, I want to tell you a story and we'll just conclude with this. Um, Something beautiful. I heard Rabbi Pesach Krohn say this this week and it's just... uh, one of, the, one of the, just such a special story. And he said, before he said he said, this story can change your life. And I, I, I believe that that's true. So anyway, the story goes like this. I'm, I'm sorry I don't remember all the names. I apologize, but the story's still good. Um, and now this was told to him by the person who it happened to, who said these words that I'm about to tell you. So, so this, comes, this story actually comes from the source. And it goes like this. There's a person who um, runs a, like a, like a Kolel, like a, you know, like a house of Torah learning up in the Catskill Mountains. And it's like a very, you know, you know, like the learning there is very strong and people are all kind of yelling out their various, you know, positions with each other. And so it's a very vibrant, very, very vibrant environment. And he notices that there's someone there who's, who's, you know, doesn't fit in with all the other people necessarily. He's sort of like new to the new to the place, and he's sitting there. He's got his art scroll uh, Talmud, and he's learning himself just with great enthusiasm and everything like that. And he's older than all the other kids and everything like that. He's already you know you know um, an established person and, you know later on in life. And so he's so the, the, Roshi, the rosh Hashiva, the yeshiva the the head of this uh, Torah institution is so taken by this person and the fact that he's he's, you know, arrived there and, and, and he's so into his learning and he comes up to him and, and he asks him what his story is and he says, listen, I didn't have the benefit of growing up with any of this knowledge and and now I now I see it and I I, I love it so much and I'm just, I'm here because this place is so great and I just want to learn great Torah in this great place and he said, listen, if you have any questions or whatever it is, if I can help you out with any of your learning or whatever it is, please don't hesitate to ask me. I'm so, you know... So privileged you're here. Okay. So this is going on over the course of the summer. Then he sees one day that the person's sitting in another spot, and he looks utterly depressed. And his, his enthusiasm is basically gone. He's just kind of sitting there. And he goes to him, and he says to him, what's the matter? He says, you know, I was just wondering. Now, this person unfortunately also had an illness, and the illness had progressed. And he said, what difference does it make? I learn, I don't learn. Who cares? What difference does it make? And the man told Rabbi Krohn, he said, he said, just, he said, Hashem had just blessed me that I had heard this particular thing the night before. So I had something to say back to him. Otherwise, he said, I don't know what I would have necessarily said to him. So here's the story. The night before this the, the 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 man who who ran that uh tour institution uh was listening to the radio and they were doing a story uh about uh a toro uh Toscanini, one of the uh great conductors um, orchestra conductors of the twentieth century and um this man was his biographer and he he wanted to be with him as much as he possibly could. And that night he wanted to be with him. And Tuscanini said back to him, he said, no, he says, you can't be with me tonight. And he said, but why? And he said, he said, well, just because. And he said, but, but please tell me. So he said, well, he said, um, my, my health is failing. I'm, I'm getting older. And he said, normally, and I, forgive me, I don't remember the, the name of the exact place. I'm going to say Austria, but there's an excellent chance it was in Austria, but it was a long plane ride away. He says, every year I do a, de- a guest conducting thing for, the, let's say, the, this, this, this orchestra in, in another country. And uh, this year is the first year in, a, in many, many, many years that I don't have the health to be able to go and do it. He said, so what I wanted to do was tonight, just by myself, I just wanted to listen on the radio... to the the performance and just hear what the conductor does differently. You know, just Mm -hmm. to hear just what he's doing and what I would have done and I just want to hear it. So, and I want to be alone for that. And the man said, I would love to be able to watch you listening to that. Mm -hmm. And he said, all right, he says, I'll make you a deal. If you sit in the corner and you don't open up your mouth and you don't break my concentration, I'll let you be there. So he says, okay. So that night, turns it on, and he's listening with great concentration. And at the end of the performance, the man keeps his side of the bargain, doesn't say a word. The man comes up to him and says, to Toscanini and says, so, what would you think? And he says, well, he said, "Uh, it, it was a little bit disappointing. He said, because there are supposed to be 15 violinists, and there were only 14 violinists. And he said, what? He said, it's just, just what I told you. And so, because of that, it didn't really have the fullness. And he said... You're trying to tell me that you were able to hear a radio broadcast from thousands of miles away, and you could tell that there's supposed to be 15 violinists, and there were only 14 violinists. And he said, "Yeah." And he, the the biographer refused to accept that. Could needed confirmation for this. Called the next day, got the orchestra, you know, office, whatever it was, and asked how many violinists there were. And the person said back to him, well, you know, it was a little bit embarrassing. Normally we had 15, but last night we only had 14. And he independently confirmed what Toscanini just knew just by listening to to the thing. And the man came back to Toscanini and said, how is it possible that you could have known that? And he says, you don't understand. He says, When you're listening, you're listening from the audience. He says, but when I'm listening, I'm facing all of the musicians and they're all playing directly to me. And he said, and I could hear that there were notes missing. And so this man said back to the man who had become depressed from his learning because he felt like, you know what? It doesn't, what difference does it make? He told him that if the conductor can hear the difference, what about Hashem, who is the conductor, who is directing all of the music, all of the orchestra, all of the notes that all of us performing, if there are notes missing, he knows the notes are missing. And the notes belong, and the notes are needed. And the notes are adding. And he knows. And it makes a difference. And so, so that's the end of the story. But, but what about us? You know, I mean, it's so easy for all of us to go, what difference does it make? You know, what difference does it make in the end? I do this, I don't do this. Who cares? Right? So, Hashem, you can imagine, Hashem, so to speak, humanly speaking with His baton. And He's like, you're sitting in your chair. Your violin is in the closet. And He's like, what are you doing? I need it! I need it! I want it! I love it! It's what I made you for! Okay, have a great week.